On this episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with Joe Garner about E.Y. Mullins. So we cover topics like who is E.Y. Mullins, what were his theological contributions, and why should Baptists and non-Baptists alike care about understanding Mullins, and much, much more. As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, you can hit us up, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now, for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. I am one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak. And I'm your co-host, Brandon Askew. And we're a podcast that's devoted to serious thinking for a serious church, but we don't want to just be serious thinkers because we think serious thinking requires particular Christian sort of virtues to go along with it if you actually want to be really serious about thinking well. So we've endeavored to create an intellectual culture of charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism. What that ends up meaning and looking like is that we try to be friendly and kind uh, while asking serious, difficult questions along the way in interviews. So hopefully we embody that. Hopefully we promote that because we think our culture sorely needs it. And that includes us, uh, me and Brandon ourselves. And not so we're not excluded from the need for these things. We think uh, we just, everybody needs them. And the more we talk about them, the more we are pushed towards them. Now, with that said, I'm really looking forward to this interview. We're going to be talking with Joe Garner about E.Y. Mullins. So I think Mullins is a fascinating figure, an important figure in Baptist life. And so for those who are listening, if you're not a Baptist, don't tune out because I think Mullins is really important for you too. If you are a Baptist, definitely you know turn the dial up. Uh, don't hit 1.5 speed. Slow it down so you can enjoy it and take in all the goodness on this, because I think this is going to be a lot of fun. So, Joe, before we get into thinking about Mullins, why don't you introduce yourself a little bit? Because I'm going to imagine that 30% of our listeners know who you are, and 70% have never heard of your name. So give me a little bit of background, and then why is it that you got interested in thinking about and researching and studying E.Y. Mullins? Yeah, sure. Thanks. So I I feel like thirty percent is probably generous, but we'll 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 go with that. So uh, so yeah. So name's Joe Garner, and uh, I currently serve as the uh, registrar uh, at Hannibal Lagrange University uh, in Hannibal, Missouri. Uh, also on faculty in the Christian Studies Department. Uh, probably start teaching here uh, within the next couple semesters. Uh, just started this position within the last uh, couple months. And uh, moved up here from Lafayette, Louisiana, uh, where I was the uh, executive pastor of Christ Church uh, there in Lafayette and also served as the administrator for Christ Church Academy. Uh, we're real creative when it comes to naming things uh, uh, there for about 10 years, uh, our classical Christian school uh, in the heart of Acadiana. And uh, also a PhD student at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. Uh, in the dissertation phase, uh, thankfully, and uh, trying to wrap it up here, hopefully uh, by the end of the semester, maybe early spring, and uh, so that I can defend in the spring. And uh, my dissertation is on E.Y. Mullins and his uh, specifically looking at uh, his public theology. So where his thought kind of intersects with the public square, you know, uh, issues like uh, obviously religious liberty, uh, relationship between Christianity and democracy, relationship between science and religion, um, uh, these sorts of things. And so I've been married uh, to my wife, Rebecca, uh, for almost 20 years. Uh, we'll, our 20th anniversary is in December, and uh, we have five kids uh, ranging from our oldest is 15 and our youngest is seven. Very cool. Well, Joe, thanks for, for joining us today. Let's start with some uh biographical information on Mullins, you know, about his, did yeah. he grow up uh, in a Christian home? What are some other things that we need to know about who Mullins is before we talk about his life as a theologian? Yeah, definitely. So uh, a lot, lot can be said about Mullins, uh, just kind of some of the preliminaries. You, you can kind of, you can kind of divide his life into, into two chunks. There's, um, uh, you know, his, you know, BS and BA or, 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 or uh, AS is BS and AS phase is before Southern and after Southern uh, uh, phase. And so essentially Mullins uh, is born uh, in Mississippi, uh, 1860. Uh, so about a year before the Civil War breaks out. And uh, his father, uh, who was a pastor and a school teacher, essentially moves his family when I believe Mullins is about five years old. 
uh, to Texas. So uh, born in Mississippi, got but got to Texas as soon as he could, right? And uh, they moved to uh, Corsicana and, uh, you know, just kind of dealing with some of the after effects of the Civil War and some of the issues during Reconstruction. Uh, they moved uh, over to Texas uh, where Mullins's father continued to be a pastor uh, there in that area. Mullins was exceptionally bright uh, as, a, as a young boy, uh, started work early, uh, and eventually entered into the first cadet class of what would eventually be uh, Texas A&M. Uh, so was uh, one of the first students there. So for any A&M fans out there, you know, gig them horns. But, uh, you know, M- Mullins is uh, one of the original Aggies. Uh, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing will, you know, depend on your personal college football convictions, I suppose. But uh, Mullins graduates from A&M and uh, initially wants to go into the law, like it seems, you know, every theologian does before they become a Christian. Uh, but w- wants to go into the law, wants to be a lawyer. But in about 1880, uh, goes to a revival, uh, tent revival service with his father uh, up in Dallas and uh, is converted uh, there during that tent revival. And uh, shortly thereafter, um, Mullins experiences what he called a, a definitive call to the ministry. And so uh, after that had been established, uh, he uh, decides to go to Southern. Uh, seminary, which at the time is the only Southern Baptist seminary uh, to exist. Southwestern doesn't start uh, until about ni- 1907, 1910, depending on, on how you date it. And so, uh, you know, at the time, Southern is the only you know name in town in terms of uh, seminary education for Southern Baptists. And so uh, he mat- uh, matriculates to Southern uh, in uh, 1881. And uh, at the time, Southern is uh, actually in downtown Louisville. Uh, at the original campus there. And uh, ironically, Mullins gets there. Uh, both times Mullins arrives at Southern, first as a student, then eventually as president, um, the seminary is either in the midst or just coming out of a great controversy. So if you're familiar with the uh, toy controversy, um, you know, at this time, you know, one of the faculty members, without getting all into it, basically, essentially one of the faculty members, uh, really one of the first faculty members of Southern that wasn't one of the founders. Um, comes to deny the historicity um, of first of Genesis, then the Pentateuch, and then functionally almost the whole Old Testament, uh, eventually denies the exclusivity of Christ. And eventually, eventually, after being removed from Southern, you know, becomes a Unitarian. Uh, but anyway, so the toy controversy, Southern's just coming out of the toy controversy. Uh, and um, Mullins arrives there as a student. Again, excels very, uh, academically almost right out of the gates, primarily taught by Boyce, uh, by the president of the seminary and founder uh, for most of his time. And eventually he graduates uh, through about 1885, uh, really at the top of his class and was able to give the uh, commencement address uh, for his graduating class and spoke on manliness and ministry. I'm not sure if you get away with that these days, uh, but that was that was kind of his topic for his, his commencement address there. So I, I, we need to do an episode called manliness and ministry. That seems like that would be pretty epic. No, we don't. don't. (laughs) Okay. So I can't remember if we were talking beforehand, the episode or during the episode already, I've forgotten. Uh, We were thinking Mullins, theological contributions, some of the things that are important. Sure. And you were mentioning like public theology that you've been Mm -hmm. studying, questions of science and religion. I'm curious, what are his thoughts on these things? Are these, and are they unique contributions that only Mullins is bringing to the table? Or maybe it's, he's bringing these tables to the table for Baptists uniquely. Um, Or is this just part of a larger stream where everybody at that time is thinking about science and religion, so he's just doing the same thing to stay relevant? Sure. Well, I mean, so it is specifically in regards to issues of science and religion. So, you know, when once Mullins eventually becomes, you know, president of Southern, really begins his teaching and his writing ministry, um, you, you really are we're kind of in the heyday at this point uh, of the, the fundamentalist modernist controversy, you know, the early 20th century. And so there's a sense in which Baptists and really just evangelicals across the board are dealing with this these issues, trying to you know, figure out, okay, you know, how do we relate the Bible to 
uh, to modern science, you know, to the uh, scientific claims about everything. You know, evolution obviously is kind of the hot button issue, but there's a lot of kind of theological and philosophical work that's going on, you know, kind of in the background of the evolution issue. And so, you know, Mullins certainly is not unique, but I would say in terms of Southern Baptists at the time, Mullins is probably um, was my scholarly qualifier there, you know, probably uh, one of the most prolific writers uh, in thinking about the distinction between what Mullins would call religious knowledge and scientific knowledge. You know, what what applies to religious knowledge, what applies to scientific knowledge, because one of the things that you'll that you see about Mullins when you look at his life as a whole and his writing as a whole, Mullins is. I would say I would argue and there probably would be some that would maybe disagree with this, but I, I think Mullins is an apologist before even maybe he's a theologian. And so what I mean by that is when Mullins articulates his theology, right, whether it's his most famous contribution, which is soul competency, which I'm sure we'll talk about in a little bit, uh, or issues of science and religion or whatever it may be, his public, you know, public theology in general, he is kind of at the, the ground level of everything is he is trying to communicate what he believes is, is, is Christian truth uh, to a, in, into a modern world for him, right? And so that's one of his primary concerns when he's writing really anything about whether it's about baptism, whether it's about evolution, uh, whether it's, uh, uh, you know, about personal experience and its role in theology. He wants to make Christianity relatable and understandable to a modern audience. That's kind of one of his fundamental things that, that, that he's trying to do. And again, I'm, I'm certainly not going to say that that's unique to Mullins, but I think at least in the Southern Baptist convention and amongst Southern Baptist theologians, he's certainly the most popular, uh, the most widely read and probably the most published in, in attempting to do that. Got it. So, I do want to pick up on soul competency. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't want to miss that. So I don't know a ton about Mullen's thoughts on this, but I do. One of the first pu- articles we published on our website was on this topic on Mullen's and soul competency by Micah Caswell. And he, he kind of poo pooed a little bit on, on it. So I, I'm right. curious, like, <laughs> that's a very technical scholarly that, term. Yeah, no, we're not good. liking that's something. <laughs> now, <laughs> what is Mullen's thoughts on this? And I guess maybe you can give your own take. You know, is, is it, is it a strong argument? Is it a bad argument? What's going on there? Yeah, definitely. So let's, let's kind of back up before we get into soul competency. Let's, let's back up a little bit. And when we talk about soul competency, really what we're getting at is trying to answer the question, how do we gain religious knowledge, right? What, what Mullins would call religious knowledge, you know, in other words, or maybe to update it a little bit, you know, um, how do we know things about God? You know, again, it's, a, it's an epistemological question, right? How, how do we know things about God? So for Mullins's predecessor at Southern, uh, both in the presidency and as the primary professor of theology at Southern uh, for, for boys, the answer is revelation, right? We know things about God. Uh, we have religious knowledge because it has been revealed to us in Scripture. Mullins pivots from that. Some would say 180 degrees, you know, others would maybe 90 degree. I don't know. But, you know, the, Mullins shifts from that regardless, and is going to shift to saying essentially that it's personal experience, right? Personal experience is how we primarily gain religious or foundationally how we gain religious knowledge. Okay. So, you know, so obviously, you know, he's being influenced, you know, by Schleiermacher and Reistel in this. Uh, He's also, there's, Without going into too much of his biography, uh, you know, Mullins was also exposed to some some uh, you know theological pragmatism uh, from William James, who's uh, was at Harvard at the time, and particularly personalism uh, by Borden Parker Bowen uh, from Boston University. Mullins, before going to Southern, Mullins was a pastor of a church uh, in a Boston suburb, uh, and so was exposed to to a lot of this. And so Mullins shifts the the center of religious knowledge from revelation, which was Boyce's view, 
to personal experience. In fact, Mullins uh, would call, uh, there's a quote here I came across um, a few months ago. I, I thought I need to hang on to this. But Mullins says essentially that experience was uh, the holy of holies of theology. You know, it's essentially where you meet God, right? Um, so for Mullins, the truth of scripture is verified by discovery through experience, right? Of his grace working in us, right? So that the idea of discovery that's, you know, you know, yes, you know, he doesn't completely throw away revelation like some of the, you know, more hardline, you know, uh, German liberal scholars would. Mullins definitely sees not just the importance, but really the necessity of, of scripture, which is why I, I personally don't classify Mullins as, you know, a, a liberal or even a, you know, a left-leaning moderate in, in a lot of ways. Um, but Mullins does put the primacy on personal experience. And so for Mullins, soul competency means, and this is a quote, the right of private judgment in religious matters and in the interpretation of scripture. So Mullins's view focuses on, and it is another quote, the right of private interpretation and obedience to the scriptures against all human interference, such as uh, episcopy or, you know, church hierarchy, church organization. So while Mullins is going to reject a lot of the conclusions of modern theology for him, so Mullins remains, Mullins believes in uh, a truthful, um, I kind of hesitate maybe to use the word inerrant, the, you know, I, I think Mullins would hold to a form of inerrancy, um, but it might be a little softer than many of us might be comfortable with. And I certainly would be comfortable with. Um, so, you know, Mullins is a supernaturalist. He believes in miracles. He believes, you know, uh, that, uh, uh, you know, doesn't want to take a purely materialistic view of the universe. So he, he doesn't land where a lot of these modern theologians land, but his demotion of revelation as a starting point of theology means that he has the same starting point, essentially, as a lot of the liberals that he would come to uh, refute. And so a lot of, so one of the big things that we see what this does, and I've kind of already alluded to it, is that Mullins divides knowledge, you know, his epistemology. He essentially divides knowledge into three spheres. You have religious knowledge, you have philosophical knowledge, and you have scientific knowledge. And while the three may, you know, delicately overlap at times, um, like Ghostbusters, you know, the, the streams should never cross. And so, you know, he, he, he wants to try to keep, you know, religious knowledge in his bounds, scientific knowledge in its bounds, philosophical in his bounds. So when, so when it comes to an issue like evolution, for instance, Mullins will say things like, well, uh, this is not a religious knowledge issue. It's a scientific issue. And so science can provide scientific knowledge, you know, the scientific method, in other words, can provide scientific knowledge, but the scientific method can't produce religious knowledge and vice versa, right? So he's got everything kind of compartmentalized, uh, which is, I think, his way of attempting to, you know, in his mind, keep the faith once for all delivered to the saints, while at the same time recognizing um, the challenges of modernity. I'm interested in his his views on uh, creeds and confessions. So, yeah. um, you, you know, you mentioned this private interpretation um, mm -hmm. type thing, and then, but then also, if, and maybe I'm just misremembering here, but didn't he preside over the the Baptist Faith and Message, uh, yeah. 1925? So that coming about. And so maybe just walk us through what, what his views are on creeds uh, and confessions and then how that, you know, cause he's got a revivalist kind of uh, mm -hmm. beginnings and everything. So I think it's really interesting cause it seems like it's kind of hard to like nail him down in, in, in this camp or that camp, if he's confessional, if he's not. Um, so just help us situate ourselves on, is he creedal? Is he confessional or is he, did he just do that for pragmatic purposes? Um, you know, coming up because I don't know. Maybe he just came up with the Baptist faith and message to, uh, you know, promote unity in the Southern Baptist Convention. I don't know. So to help us understand that. Yeah, great. So, and like any good historian, you know, the answer is well, it depends, right? So here's the issue with Mullins. So for the 
the bulk of his career, Mullins was um, at best suspicious of confessions and at times even, I would say, hostile to confessions. Um, and this is leading, this is, I would say, probably, you know, before 25, you know, so before the Baptist faith and message, he's certainly much more hostile to confessions. Um, because again, as, as we've mentioned it, you know, confessions by their very nature, Mullins would say are a form of, um, he would, he would call it, uh, Episcopal tyranny, right? Uh, it, it's a, it's a form of kind of church hierarchy, church tyranny. He really, he really didn't, you know, he, he equated strong confessionalism with hierarchical ecclesiology. Does that make sense? Right. So, so, you know, where if you had a strong confession and if you abided by that confession and if that confession was even determinative to some degrees, particularly early in Mullins's career, he would say, you know, he would probably call you a dirty word like a papist. Right. Uh, you know, um, and so so, you know, he would he would say that that would, uh, you know, reek of uh, Episcop Episcopacy. Right. Um, however. Over time, I would say. Mullins's view of confessions softened um, leading up to the 25, you know, leading up to the BFNM. And there's a lot of conjecture here, so I, I don't want to. I don't want to pretend like this is, you know, definitive, but I would say, you know, um, I would say that Mullins embrace of a sort of confession like the Baptist faith and message was probably primarily a pragmatic move. Now, I don't want to say it's exclusively because I, I can't point to anything in writing, you know, but, but given what he said about confessions before the Baptist faith and message, and then given his participation in uh, the writing of the Baptist faith and message, and then some of the things that he says about confessions afterwards, um, his, his view certainly softens. He's still suspicious. And he still thinks that I would say Mullins would say that they are, you know, maybe um, helpful or almost like an ornament maybe to local church life and local church practice, but they, but he would probably push back on whether that they are authoritative in any real way on the individual. Right. So, I mean, he, he's got a, and, and I would also say, you know, he has a, he would have a much higher view of something like, you know, like Nicaea versus something like, you know, the London, you know, the London confession or something like that, something more recent, you know, um, the story with the Baptist faith and message is actually pretty interesting because again, like, like I said, you know, so he's, he's, you've got someone who's very hostile, um, to the idea of confessions who in, in public and writing has written on the dangers proposed in, in Baptists becoming confessional and the Southern Baptist convention adopting a confession. Um, and yet he is, even though there's a committee that the Baptist faith and message originally is a, is a committee, uh, it was written by committee. He is, everyone almost entirely agrees is the primary author of the BFNM 25. And so it, essentially what, what many have said is that Mullins agreed to go on to the committee uh, and to chair the committee, mostly to make sure that the Baptist Faith and Message 25 um, was acceptable <laughs> to him, was, was loose enough uh, and broad enough and wide enough um, and not overly narrow. And, and part of the tension that's going on at the time, one of the reasons that uh, Southern Baptist Convention even approached the idea of having a confession was the issue of evolution, right? Was the issue of, of ultimately it was the issue of the, of the scriptures. So you could say Southern Baptist confessionalism, uh, at least in the Baptist faith and message kind of springs out of questions of the Bible, questions of, can we trust the Bible? Not much has changed. Right. But, um, but, but, these you know, questions brought along by the evolution debates, by the fundamentalist controversy, many people felt like, okay, we need a confession as Southern Baptist churches uh, to, to bring us all together as, as a, like you, you guys mentioned earlier, as an issue of unity. And that was, I think, Mullins's angle was he wanted, if, he, if there had to be a confession, right, uh, it needed to be something that would be unifying. 
And so just, you know, like any good politician, uh, if you want something to go a certain way, you need to be the one that writes it. And so that's what he did. Now, was it his idea to to base the um, Baptist Faith and Message 25 on the New Hampshire Confession? Yes. And And if so, what was it in the New Hampshire that that steered him away from just adopting the New Hampshire as uh, as the the confessional document for Southern Baptists? Yeah. So, so in the initial, so you can look and you can see, you know, Mullins actually discusses this specifically. Well, why, you know, why is, you know, the, the New Hampshire confession kind of the, the basis of the BFNM and the reason that Mullins gives, he said that primarily it's because uh, the New Hampshire confession was not nearly as specifically Calvinistic as something like the Charleston confession was. Right. Uh, and so he, you know, again, Mullins is after a, a unifying uh, vision for the BFNM. And so issues between Calvinism uh, and, and non-Calvinism or, you know, tra- traditionalism, however you want to label that, uh, you know, were present even in Mullins's day, early 20th century. Uh, and so, you know, the, he states that's one of the reasons the New Hampshire was chosen uh, because its language was not not as specifically Calvinistic, um, particularly in soteriology, as as like again the Charleston or or even the um, even the Confession of Southern, right? Um, uh, and so so that's why the New Hampshire was chosen. In regards to why not just adopt the New Hampshire Confession wholesale? Again, I think this points to Mullins's suspicion of confessions in general. Mullins, if, if you, uh, on the Southern Baptist Convention website, there's a real handy, uh, I don't know if you've ever seen this, but real handy comparison chart between the 25, the 63, and the 2000. And if you'll notice, the 25 is significantly shorter, uh, significantly vaguer, honestly, in a lot of ways than even the 63, and especially compared to the 2000. And so one of the reasons I think that Mullins decided to essentially, um, you know, write his own with the New Hampshire as the basis is because he wanted to keep it purposefully short, vague, um, and unifying in his mind. Yeah, that all makes sense. Now, as I think about his context, are his thoughts on these sort of things pretty common across the board, or is he somewhat of an aberration from other Baptists or others who are Protestants, but obviously not Baptists. Talk about uh, in regards to confessionalism or like... Yeah, in regards to confessional, at least at this time. So his suspicion, is that common across the board? Yeah, so I would say that at the time, um, what you could say is that the more... um, Calvinistic, the Southern Baptist, the more comfortable they are with confessions and the more revivalistic the Southern Baptist, the less comfortable they are with confessions. Now, I would add to that. um, I would also say that these, you know, some would argue that these things intersect and and they don't necessarily intersect. But at Mullins's day, you do see a lot. You do see some correlation. I would also say. at the very least, the more at in Mullins' day, the more liberal you were theologically, the more suspicious or disdainful you were of confessions, right? And so, a lot of it is just—I mean, I mean, you guys probably know enough know enough about Southern Baptist history to know that Southern Baptists have never been unified about anything ever, right? And, and I mean, beyond just basic, you know what it means, you know, some basics on being a Baptist and and some, you know, Nicene Orthodoxy and things like that. But, you know, we've always had push points. We've always Are we even unified on Nicene Orthodoxy? I don't want to get into that. So, okay. you know, sorry, that, sorry, that's sorry. a different podcast. But, <laughs> um, but, but, you know, so we, we've always had these divisions, you know, there have always been divisions between, uh, you know, regardless, uh, I think of what you're, you know, even your most diehard, um, um, you know, Calvinistic, you know, Baptist, you know, out there 
is going to say that they're in Baptist history, even beyond Southern Baptist, there have always been those that are more Calvinistic, those that are less Calvinistic. We've always had these touch points. And so, you know, at, in Mullins's day, there was a, a, a decent theological diversity um, within the convention. Um, and that was one of the reasons why I think you have such a hesitancy, at least at the national level, to adopt a confession. I also would like to add, you know, um, that that's not to say that Southern Baptists have been anti-confessional. They've been extremely confessional from the very beginning of their history. And I would argue were always confessional uh, until relatively modern times. They were just confessional at the local church level mm-hmm. or at the associational level. They just weren't, you know, before 19, it's not like in 1925, Southern Baptists like spontaneously developed confessionalism, right? They were always confessional. They were just confessional at the local church level or the associational level. And there wasn't a need. That was one of, that was actually one of Mullins's arguments against confessions at the national level before 25 was that we don't need one, right? Because we're not a denomination, right? Mm-hmm. Which is true, right? We're a convention of churches and the local churches have confessions. Therefore, the convention itself doesn't need one. So, so all, a very long answer to your very simple question. Uh, no. Essentially, I would say uh, there was a you know there was a diversity of views in regards to you know how important confessions were within the convention at the time of Mullins. You have some that saw them as very important, some that saw them not very important, and others that saw them as uh, being actually anti-Baptist. I've got to think Mullins, or at least among Southern Baptists, is. I mean, maybe I'm wrong about this. I don't know. Is one of the more well-researched figures uh, in Southern Baptist history. But as you've, um, you know, you've been studying him for years now. Is there anything you've come across that you think maybe is an under-researched area um, in his life and his work that you think could be uh, maybe a possible dissertation topic for somebody who's interested in, in doing that kind of work? Yeah, definitely. I mean, to be honest with you, I would say pretty much anything about Mullins outside of soul competency, religious knowledge, personal experience is pretty much uncharted waters, right? So for, for a lot of people, particularly, um, I would say since, since Mullins, you know, obviously since Mullins' death, but probably even since like the sixties or, or seventies, uh, really you could maybe even say since the, um, you know, since the conservative resurgence or just before the conservative resurgence in the Southern Baptist Convention, um, that was Mullins was a one trick pony, right? Mullins's primary contribution, sole contribution, maybe even to Baptist theology was the his articulation of soul competency, right? Of this kind of uh, more extreme view of personal freedom. Uh, I, I like to, you know, as a shorthand, I like to think of soul competency as basically, um, you know, if, 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 uh, priesthood of all believers is Bruce Banner, then soul competency is, is the Hulk, right? It's, it's, it's priesthood of the believer on steroids with maybe some cybernetic augmentation or something. I don't know, but you know, it's, and so that's been very well done. Right. And again, there's always more that can be done. But that area of his thought, this primary contribution, I would say maybe primary unique contribution to Baptist thought has been very well done. But outside of that, very little has been done. That's one of the reasons I chose to pursue Mullins' public theology. As I'm reading Mullins, um, I'm what I'm seeing is that he comments constantly on what we would call kind of public sphere issues. Right. Um uh, and and has some interesting conclusions, I find. And yes, soul competency is under all of that. You know, his views of religious liberty, you know, spring directly out, out of his view on soul competency. So soul competency is always there, right? It's it is it is kind of the the lodestone of his theological method. But there are there are other places that Mullen spends some time writing and commenting on. So it's one of the reasons I pick public theology, but some other occasions I I've not seen much done in Mullins's vision for Christ, uh, specifically, or I should say, distinctly Christian theological education, right? So um, I would argue that Mullins created the modern the modern Southern Baptist seminary. 
Um, and you could, you know, outside of something like Fuller, I would say Southern Southern Seminary is probably it could be at least in the top three most influential just evangelical seminaries in the U.S. Right? I, I mean, I, I think. Um, and so, or maybe, maybe at least in a certain segment of, of evangelicalism, but Mullins created the modern Southern, right? So Southern seminary, the way it was organized, the way, uh, it did things, just it's, it's, it's view of theological education before Mullins and after Mullins were two very different things. So for instance, Boyce, as influential as he is in Southern Baptist thought and life in terms of theological education, Boyce was was not much more organizationally at Southern than like a, like a dean or a chairman of the faculty, right? Southern was basically run by committee, by a committee of the faculty. And that's essentially how it was governed, you know, you know, outside of the, the trustees. When Mullins becomes president, oh, I mean, he didn't do it overnight. Over time, Mullins transforms the leadership structure and the decision-making structure at Southern to more of what we see today, where um, I think Dr. Moeller described it as essentially he, the president, is the 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 employee of the trustees, and then everyone else in terms of the faculty works for Dr. Moeller. So Dr. Moeller works for the trustees, and the faculty work for Dr. Moeller. In essence, um, that began with Mullins. That that type of system began in Mullins. And I go, I'll go even a step further, and I will say that in the midst of the conservative resurgence, the transformation Dr. Moeller um, uh, blessed Southern with, right, uh, from the liberal institution it was to what it is today, was only possible because of the, the hierarchical changes and the organizational and structural changes put in by Mullins who ironically, many argue, and I, I would argue this to some extent, was essentially the cause, or at least opened the door to the liberal drift at Southern and in, you know, many of the other seminaries uh, from there. So, so anyway, so all that to say, kind of, you know, Mullins' vision for theological education, I think this idea of Mullins as an apologetic theologian is something that not a lot, a couple journal articles I've seen, but but not any kind of substantive treatment. Um, something I'm considering doing maybe one day once the dissertation's out of the way. Uh, I really want to dig into the relationship between Mullins and B.H. Carroll. B.H. Uh, Carroll, the, the founder of Southwestern Seminary. So B.H. Carroll was a trustee at Southern um, when Mullins was hired. Uh, he was a trustee at Southern before Mullins, actually one of the primary trustees that caused uh, Witsit, who was the Mullins' predecessor, to be fired. That's a whole other story. Um, that's the other controversy that Mullins came into when he came in to be president. I can talk about that if you want to. But, um, you know, there was a controversy with, with Witsit. Witsit uh, resigned under pressure. Um, and B.H. Carroll, as a trustee of Southern, was one of the primary voices behind, you know, booting Witsit, essentially. Um, but B.H. Carroll and Mullins had a very interesting relationship, very, 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 very different theologically. Um, I would say very different in terms of their vision for, for, um, for Baptist uh, theological education in some ways. They've exchanged letters and correspondence even after B.H. Carroll founded Southern. B.H. Um, uh, Carroll kind of poked and prodded Mullins a little bit on some issues regarding baptismal regeneration uh, that it looked like Mullins might be flirting with. Uh, at one point uh, in his career. And so you just have some real interesting dynamics going on there that I've not really seen any work with work done in. And then honestly, we need, and, and again, this is something I've tinkered with the idea of doing as well. Um, but we need a good, we need a new biography of Mullins. Um, so there have been, there's a lot of good short form, like essay biographies of Mullins. Uh, one of the better ones written by Dr. Muller. Uh, you can find it on the Southern website. Um, uh, you can also look in the, I think it's the winter ish, winter 99 issue of the Southern Theology Journal. Uh, it's in there as well. Uh, but you have a few other kind of small essay sized biographies of Mullins, but there have only been two uh, monograph size biographies of Mullins. One of them was written by his wife uh, about three or four years after he died. Uh, I'm not sure if I'd want my wife writing my biography, but it might not be as complimentary as 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 I would want it to be. But that's neither here nor there. 
but one was written by his wife and the other was written uh, by uh, William E. Ellis um, in the uh, midst of the conservative resurgence, uh, really just as things were, were really kind of heating up and the conservatives were beginning to get some traction. And so Ellis's biography in many ways is good. I think it's good mostly because it's the only one, <laughs> you know, in terms of monograph, not written by a family member. Um, but Ellis's biography is very polemical, very bent towards using Mullins as a justification for the more moderate to liberal Baptist position, these sorts of things. Um, and so I, I think it's, it's usefulness um, is, is pretty limited in that regard. Um, so anyway, uh, but just some basic biographical work I think could be done. That's all very interesting. And just so we all know, I lived in Witsit Hall at Southern Seminary. Yeah. So, ooh, Witsit. <laughs> mentioned. I, you know, the, the funny thing about Witsit, that, that's one of my favorite, honestly, Witsit, even though technically Mullins is barely involved with it, that's kind of one of my favorite ironies of, of Mullins' career is, is, and again, not to go into Witsit's story too much, but essentially Witsit um, uh, is – pushed out of the presidency of Southern. Witsit was the third president of Southern. So, you know, Boyce dies, Broadus dies, then Witsit becomes president. And as Witsit is being voted on to become president, some he releases some articles and some articles he had previously written um, anonymously came to public where essentially he writes the shocking conclusion that Baptists didn't originate with John the Baptist. <laughs> Oh, I mean, no. I'm, 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 I'm using a little bit of hyperbole here, but essentially, you My know, life is uh, a lie. I know. Right. So, you know, essentially Witsit says, you know, that, you know, essentially, you know, modern Baptists, you know, British Baptists, you know, yeah. begin about, you know, 1641, um, you know, out, you know, basically a lot of similar things to what we view today, you know, out of, you know, English nonconformity. Um, and at that time, you know, landmarkism, uh, is 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 a huge controversy and, and and very influential in the Southern Baptist Convention. Maybe even a majority opinion in the Southern Baptist Convention. And landmarkism, landmarkism essentially says that you can trace an unbroken line, the trail of blood. Right, you can trace an unbroken line, literally all the way back to John the Baptist. You know, of there being Baptists of various forms. They may have been called different things. And, you know, if you know anything about the Trail of Blood, you know that line goes through some pretty sketchy territory, uh, <laughs> you know, historically. But all that to say, Witsit essentially, you know, Witsit says some other things that probably are maybe a little more disagreeable, basically, that, you know, most Baptist groups, uh, you know, didn't begin with immersion, they began with infusion. Uh, he said that uh, Roger Williams, uh, you know, first Baptist here in the United States, uh, you know, was was uh, infused and not immersed. You know, some little oddities of that, but but his basic thesis is that Baptists began with in British nonconformity in the 17th century, and so he essentially, wow. you know, big firestorm blows up. Uh, he eventually is pressured to resign, and he does resign, and then they hire Mullins, uh, who believes the exact same thing that Witsit does, and had actually defended Witsit in a publication that apparently nobody read um, because, and, and so the reason they went, one of the reasons the committee went with Mullins is because at the time he was pastoring uh, a non-Southern Baptist church. And so he was, he was, he was outside of Boston. He was outside the South. Um, uh, everybody, the Southern Baptists knew him and, you know, he's graduate of Southern. So in a sense, he was Southern Baptist. He just happened to not be pastoring a Southern Baptist church. And so he was seen as being kind of outside of the controversy, even though he had publicly defended Witsit, just nobody came across. It's not like Google, you know, uh, <laughs> nobody came across really the, the magazine article until after he was already president. And, uh, and, and he was supported by both, you know, some, some of the landmarkers, at least early in his uh, career. And then uh, also, you know, non-landmarkers as well. And so it's kind of one of the ironies there is, yeah. you know, that his predecessor was fired for holding to a particular view of Baptist origins and Mullins is hired, even though he holds to exactly the same view or not, maybe not exactly, Google, but pretty much the yeah. same view. Well, Google would have been a game changer for all these I things. Exactly. I can't, exactly. I, can you imagine what Google would have done to all of these different <laughs> theological com controversies throughout the years if it existed? I Good know. night. Martin Lu Luther with Google? <laughs> <laughs> 
I just Luther with Twitter would have been amazing. I know. I'm just oh, trying to imagine yeah. Luther with a Twitter account. Yeah. That's what Carl Truman has said that I guess Luther is one of the only two people that should ever be allowed to have Twitter <laughs> because of that very right. fact. Yeah, Carl Truman is right about a lot of things, and that's one of them. <laughs> I want I want to ask my my uh, my new little Baptist question that I, I'm going to start asking all the Baptist people. So, okay. uh, give me your your three favorite baptist uh resources so i mean this this is just your personal favorite not doesn't have to have anything to do with mullins like whether it's history or theology ecclesiology um your top three so very top of the list uh i would say is uh james leo garrett's magnum opus uh baptist theology right now it is uh a beast Right. So it's a lot of people know Garrett uh, primarily for a systematic theology, which is also really good. But he wrote what, you know, what we would call essentially a, a Baptist historical theology. It's, it's like nine hundred and eighty some odd pages. Right. And it basically goes through pretty much every Baptist movement that you could think of. Gives you the main the major characters, major theological developments does them in a, in a well-written, well-organized order, and really gives you kind of a, a, a picture of um, kind of the, the, the Baptist story. Just out, you know, it is written by a Southern Baptist, but it's, it's, it deals with kind of every, every genre of Baptist, you know, you could think of. Um, not necessarily going to uh, agree with all of his conclusions, but, but Garrett does a, a really great job of presenting kind of the, the tapestry of Baptist life, uh, and and therefore through that uh, the tapestry of Baptist theology, so that's I mean that's probably kind of you know um, uh, difficulty level you know red maybe in in that regard uh, it's 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 pretty thick but but it's a super valuable resource particularly if you're doing masters or, or doctorate level research and study you know in, in Baptist life and thought um, I would also say that um, and I'm blanking out on the exact title, but, um, uh, Tom, Thomas Kidd and, um, Barry Hankins just re- released a few years ago, I think Baptists in America, uh, to a, a Baptist history. I may be, I may be off on the title there. Um, but that, I, I think specifically in terms of, you know, American Baptists are, uh, that that's proved to be a, a real valuable resource. Um, I think one one area that one book that some people reference, some people look at, and it may seem kind of niche, but something that I think has been one of the one of the more valuable books. And this is maybe if we get a little more specific in terms of like the Southern Baptist Convention, um, it's there's surprisingly not that many um, single volume histories, you know, of the SBC. Um and most of them have to deal with a particular controversy or a particular figure, but just kind of a history of the SBC as a whole, it's kind of hard to find. And, and this book is not a history of the SBC, but it's actually a history of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. So uh, Gregory Will's uh, history, uh, it's just called Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, 1859 to 2009. Um, it's essentially, think of it like a biography uh, for an institution, right? It's, it's a biography of Southern Seminary, but but because Southern Seminary is there almost from the beginning of the convention, what you see through the story of Southern is really the story of the Southern Baptist Convention. Highs and lows, good points and bad points, everything in between. Um, and, and Will's, uh, you know, probably one of my favorite, you know, Baptist theologians currently living, Southern Baptist theologians currently living, um, does a just a phenomenal job of, of laying out you know, the, the data laying out the details, but also doing so with, with a kind of compelling narrative. So you, you know, if you enjoy just reading history books, even if you're not like a a Southern Baptist history person, which is like five people, I think, uh, or, you know, even if you're just not a, even if you're not a Baptist history person, if you just like reading history, then Wills's, um, history of Southern seminary, uh, is, is very readable, very valuable. And again, along with that, you get a kind of a picture of the history of the convention as well. Excellent. Yeah, well, this has been awesome, uh, Joe. I really appreciate you talking with us about Mullins. I think we've covered a huge array of topics here. So those who are listening, you've got lots of 
areas you can go poke around and learn and uh, explore and think with. So thank you for talking with us about Mullins. And for everybody who's been listening, uh, Joe's got a Twitter, so you can go follow him on there. Uh, Joe, do you have a website or anything? No, I've, I've, I've got to finish my dissertation. <laughs> that makes priorities. Uh, that's, that's the way you need to do oh, it. Yeah. So so none of, in the none meantime, yeah, in the meantime, follow Joe on Twitter uh, and you can keep up with his work there. And whenever you, you finish the dissertation, you'll have to let us all know so that we can celebrate and say congrats. And I can maybe I'll go back and edit the episode and say, hey, Dr. Joe Carner. Sounds uh, good. Perfect. <laughs> we can retroactively do that. That'd be pretty awesome. Uh, that's right. <laughs> all right. Well, thanks, everybody, for tuning in to the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet. And we'll talk to you guys soon. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.